Welcome to the Free Rohingya Coalition Genocide Podcast. I am uh, very honored and pleased to, to have um, uh, Tapan Kumar Bose from New Delhi, India. Uh, Tapan is a very renowned uh, human rights activist. Uh, he was uh, um, the General, Se General Secretary of South Asia Forum for Human Rights, um, a documentary filmmaker, um, writer, journalist, and that's uh, a trustee of uh, um, a number of uh, prominent uh, human rights organizations in the uh, UK and other places. And he's also a citizen ambassador representing the uh, Free Rohingya Coalition and our uh, Rohingya um, activists and refugees and very active in pushing for institutional protection of refugees. Um, mm -hmm. His work uh, goes back or basically covers about 50 years and you know, the, having been involved in so many uh, the, uh, waves of refugees coming into India since um, 1971. Um, you know, East um, Bengali refugees that came into India. Uh, and so, welcome, Tapanji. Um, can I ask? We watched um, last night an Indian story. I, I understand that was banned for a long time in, um, in India. Um, and um, it captures a police brutality, the colonial roots of this institution that um, has been used by. Uh, you know, the money and political interest, uh, land owners in India, you know, higher cost, uh, uh, you know, uh, political powers, uh, administration. It focuses on the blinding of, uh, you know, uh, dozens of um, Biharis, uh, you know, uh, uh, people in the state of Bihar, the one of the poorest. But it reflects also the, uh, uh, the, the issues that Black Lives Matter today are fighting, you know, uh, they're, they're, these issues are not simply police brutality, but it's entertained with the predatory state, political state, left over from the colonial period and the modern post-independent elites that behave as if they were the white masters of their own people in places like India, uh, Burma, my own country as well. Can you explain the history behind this film and take us um, all the way back, uh, you know, to, to present day police brutality and Black Lives Matter? Well, you know, uh, I mean, that was in 80. Uh, it, it actually had happened, I think, towards the end of 79 or 1950 uh, in the state of Bihar, uh, which is one of the poorest, as you pointed out, and uh, highly feudal, you know. Uh, it's a state where, uh, I mean, it's extreme poverty and extreme richness, uh, and it hasn't changed over the years, though many promises were made by various ruling uh, parties that they will introduce land reforms and, and all that, but nothing has really happened. People there are, you know, who own hundreds or thousands of hectares of land. And uh, so therefore, uh, the audience, the, the landless peasantry are like serfs, I mean, as they used to be in the, in the older feudal times. Uh, so Bihar is the place where it happened uh, uh, in, the, in the district of uh, Bhagalpur, which is both an agricultural area as well as a, uh, one of the most uh, richest silk uh, growing areas. So there are all kinds of landlords there, you know, landlords of land, landlords of forest, landlords of 
even the river, uh, you know, fishing and, and all that. And that is where uh, the police uh, went about uh, blinding uh, undertale prisoners. So people they picked up from here and there, on whatever suspicion. And the, the extreme, usually the police uh, take people in, beat them up, keep them in police custody for days and months, and then, you know, with compliant magistrates and others put up false charges and put them in jail, where they remain for years and years. That is that is being the pattern in this country. Uh, but this form of brutality is something that had never happened before. Well, that, that is not known. And it has been apparently going on for quite some time. Uh, it, it came out only because, as you have seen in the film, Mr. B.L. Das, who was then the superintendent of uh, the central jail in Bhadalpur district. He said, you know, this was uh, something he just couldn't take. It. So he, uh, he uh, got them uh, examined by, by law, uh, by, by doctors and hospitals, and then even then nothing happened. So, and he wrote reports. His reports went all the way up to the inspector general, the director general, the home secretary, but they got lost there. So what he did finally is he allowed a few journalists to just quietly go in and meet them. And that's when the story burst open. When I met them, young people, you know, in, I met them in the Supreme Court because they had come there, you know, brought there for, uh, you know, relief, uh, judicial relief. Uh, when I met them, I, Zani, I was completely frightened, you know. Uh, frightened by the fact, not just the horror of what has been done to them, but frightened by the fact that this can happen. And this can happen as if it's a routine matter. And the whole official dumb and politicians, even the chief minister of the state of Bihar, were all around, you know, trying to just cover it up. And the point is, if this kind of, what I, you know, I and some of my friends with this, because this kind of brutality can can be covered up, can can allow to, to go unchallenged, uh, then we're done for, you know. Uh, so therefore, but then, you know, I, I was then a budding filmmaker and I, I said, what can I do? And the civil rights movement in those days was not very strong. So I said, let me try and make a film. So I interviewed them and realized that the whole thing was false, you know, people were just picked up and and, and for whatever reason, the police and the business community and the landlords there had decided that they had to create a, a kind of terrorization in that area. Uh, probably they were facing challenges uh, from the peasantry, from the from others. So they just wanted to terrorize the people of that area. So when I I, I we met them and we spoke to them and we interviewed them. Then we decided to go down there and to see for ourselves what happened. And that's where we, we realized what was happening. But the point was that, you know, uh, then we said, you know, how can this happen? What is the social, political, uh, you know, milieu, the atmosphere that allows this kind of thing? And that's what the Indian story uh, then expands into the whole question of land relationship, the peasantry, the landlords the state uh, and, 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 you know, talks about the movements and the police brutality. Uh, 
well the the victims of bhagalpur uh, you know extreme form of uh, blinding uh, uh, got some justice of course they never got their eyes back but uh, they got some justice they got some rehabilitation it shook up and for some time uh, there was uh, a, i would say even in the state of bihar there was a lull in that kind of police brutality but it has not changed substantially yeah i i think it happened sorry to interrupt i think it happened during the um, prime ministership of india gandhi uh, apparently the gorging of eyes hit the indian uh, you know uh, 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 headlines and shook the nation yeah and uh, she was uh, uh, condemning um the act you know we were talking about absolutely you know horrific you know barbaric act that we associate only with the middle ages yeah. absolutely, absolutely and and um, but i think you know the, the, just try to uh, you know uh, uh, the, throw a few comparisons just yesterday uh, the king of belgium after a yes. hundred or so years came out and offer an official apology to what uh, the belgium the king leopold and his assemblage yeah. of you know colonizers uh, did to the um, you know the present day democratic republic of congo you know the diamonds and all the riches uh, ex being extracted while you know upward of 10 million native africans uh, were decimated under you know uh, yeah. in those years as you well aware um the belgium colonial police would uh, cut the arms of anyone that uh, you know any africa they they consider a troublemaker you know or whatever reasons and then they bring them to the police station they were collecting hands or arms of people that they criminalized you know and and and, and we saw this in 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 the united states as well you know the uh, with the us south uh, with um, Ku Klux Klan, yeah. and 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 what strikes me about your film is the pattern of these institutional linkages. You know, political administrations or bureau, you know, top bureaucrats, politicians. You know, the uh, land owners, and, and there is a, a very very strong, you know class and caste element in indian context and in the context of usa uh, both class and uh, race yeah, in the context of uh, uh, britain uh, the police force was uh, founded primarily to go after you know the basically uh, you know fraudulent economic behavior like an inability to pay back small yeah. loans by small people and so the, the, you know the, the, this this is like a universal pattern almost timeless and um, you know like across all continents you know that's why like your film made in or released in 1982 83 82 in an in indian story mm. still yeah. is very very poignant because you capture the um, uh, oh it captured um, these uh, universal class and race and class or caste um, 
you know, uh, brutality and uh, um, exploitation. Yeah? Do you see this happening in India with the BJP uh, at the current um, time? Well, Rani, you know, it's very strange that, you know, when we look at the, the, the British period and the police, the way they, they dealt with, uh, even whom they call terrorists, uh, the level of torture that we have seen in post-independent India compared with the British period, the British were very, very civilized, except one or two uh, few incident aberrations like the mass killing in Jallianwala Bagh, uh, or, uh, you know, torture was there, sure. But it was never this kind of gouging of eyes, chopping of limbs, which, you know, for example, the, the, uh, the Leo, King Leopold's uh, Belgium, or even in, you know, some of the other areas, uh, colonies, uh, it wasn't so. So it's a, it's, an, it's, a, it's a wonder as to why uh, the Indian police after independence has uh, become so brutal. Uh, in and to, towards his own people. Hmm? Towards his own people. Towards yeah. his own people. Towards his own people. And, and that is uh, something that uh, needs to be. And unfortunately, these are issues that uh, even our uh, academics don't uh, really seem to go into as to, you know, the psychology. I mean, just recently, you know, a few days ago, in this, uh, in the state of Tamil Nadu, uh, this COVID thing they have introduced lockdown. So there is a lockdown, and shops are being allowed to open, but they they must they've been given timing must close by five thirty. So, so there was a an elderly person who had not been able to close his store by the given time. So the police went and picked him up, and also took away his son. And they kept them in lockup and they beat them, beat them, beat them till, you know, uh, they, both of them are dead now. And, and the tragedy is exactly, I mean, if you look at what happened in, 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 in Bhagalpur, the way the magistrate and the police collaborate, the, this two persons, they were hardly able to stand, they were bleeding, they were taken to the magistrate. And because of lockdown, the courts are closed, but the magistrate is operating from his home. So he looked at them out of his first floor window and said, okay, put them, uh, put them in judicial custody. They were taken to the jail. The jail authorities did not uh, record that they were bleeding and they, they were badly tortured. They were badly injured. So two days later, they became very, very critical. So they were taken to the hospital and they died. Now, of course, the whole thing is busted open. It's not uh, so quiet. And even though they have this COVID uh, you know, lockdown and, and all that. But people are out there in that town and, uh, you know, ordinary people, shopkeepers, everybody is protesting. Finally, uh, they just, uh, the High Court of the state uh, took cognizance and sent a judicial magistrate to inquire into the police station. And what happened there? The judicial magistrate has filed a report to the High Court saying that I have been intimidated, abused, we were not given any cooperation. The policeman threatened us, so we finally had to come away. So this is the state of affairs we are we are dealing with, you know, and it's uh, and this is not an aberration. Under the, Tamil Nadu has a BJP supported government. Under BJP, things have become even more worse. How and, so? In what ways? 
Well, you see, what they're doing is they, they are compromised almost every institution. But the police is no longer uh, operating independently. So they, for example, in, in, in Delhi, in uh, end of February, we had communal killings. And there were organized communal killings. And the communal killings happened in northeastern part of Delhi, uh, where uh, people were protesting against the uh, Citizenship Amendment Act. As you know, I mean, there was a nationwide protest was going on, and it would have gone on, and probably would have, you know, become a massive mass movement had this COVID uh, pandemic not come as a godsend gift to Modi and his cohorts, uh, and they have been able to close it. So, what is the police doing? Fifty-three Muslims were killed. The facts of the case is pretty well known. To one BJP. Uh, leader had gone and threatened in the presence of the police when the agitation was going on that I will bring your own people and we will, you know, kick you. The police were standing there and exactly that is what happened, spread into an organized killing. The police today are going about not arresting the fellow who had issued the threat, not arresting those BJP fellows who had said, you know, these are the anti-nationals, these are the enemies of the people, the slogans they give, uh, kill them and, and, and openly. So police is not touching, is not making any inquiries about the people who provoke, who are associated with the BJP and its party, uh, you know, or organization. They are now going about identifying and filing cases against people of the victim's community. About 30-40 people have already been arrested on charges of attempted murder, or murder, rioting, this, that, and all. And the courts, uh, when they're giving them bail, saying that charges are, you know, not substantiated, what is the position of our uh, government uh, lawyer, the advocate general, he says, stands up before the court and says, if you give them bail, it will send wrong messages. Wrong message to him. Now, this is the way the institutional, uh, you know, corruption is taking place. Police is no longer an independent agency. Police is functioning only as per orders of the uh, of the government of the day, huh? and uh, the. And if you look at what is happening in Kashmir, the worst case. Do, 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 you, do you not see the um, colonial DNA of policing in places like India or Burma? Or, you know, that's what, you know, I also mentioned the um, uh, police force in the American South and this country as well. You know, the, if, if we start with the... Uh, assumption, which is a fair assumption, police force is there to protect communities and members of the community. Yeah? And, and, but historically and empirically, police forces have been used as instruments of, you know, uh, essentially uh, state and corporate repression. And, and and when you're describing uh, this, um, you know, magistrates covering up or the uh, advocate general uh, siding with the police instead of having an independent judicial uh, uh, view, 
Um, yeah. in, in places like Burma, like, uh, you know, where I came from, a if a community is marked as, a, a, as an enemy or unwanted by the state of Burma or Myanmar, mm -hmm. then the police would essentially defend the perpetrators of crimes, whether it's burning the, uh, the mosque or like, you know, destroying the Muslim shops. The police just stand there with their arms, they're smoking cheroots, yeah? So you have a similar situation. Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. That is exactly what is happening. The police here is looking the other way when the, when the BJP marauders go and kill. And whether it is, you know, beating to death, lynching, killing of, uh, of a Muslim person on the ground, he's, uh, he's trading in beef or cow slaughter, or, you know, Dalits uh, for having entered a temple or, uh, or, or, or the kind of killing that, take, that is now taking place, organized program of, against the uh, minority government. Police just stand there. And after them, the perpetrators have come and gone, they go and beat up the victim's community and they, they, they arrest the victims for having created all this. Can I, can I ask you one thing? I was reading recently about the, um, you know, social psych, psych, uh, psychology research on, um, on the Indian caste system, you know, and uh, the, you know, the higher caste, uh, caste see themselves as wise and noble and moral and principled and compassionate and, 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 you know, fit to rule, if you will. And then, the lower caste people, you know, hundreds of millions, uh, their existence, their physical appearance, you know, their livelihoods have been criminalized, you know, in the eyes of the, uh, the, uh, the ruling caste people. Yeah? And how does this, um, you know, the, the, um, what, what is BJP's agenda? And what, what, what is their ideology? I mean, like recently, Indian Supreme Court is reported to have struck down uh, the attempt to change the name of India to Bharat, or you know, like a pure Hindu nation. Yeah? Uh, the, the the you know, India only for Hindu kind of thing. Like, can you explain this sort of like you know, um, religious and in quote unquote racial or caste purity that BJP appears to be pursuing with respect to? non-Hindus and, you know, um, other uh, lower, quote-unquote, lower caste uh, uh, communities? Well, you see, uh, India is about 80% or more than 80% Hindu. Like, you know, you have the same problem situation in Burma, overwhelming, you know, Burmese. Yeah. Uh, we've been experimenting, I would say, to create a, a secular nation. Uh, a, a government, a constitution which does not recognize any religion. And, and it has been, I would say, uh, till about, I mean, of course, the, the underlying uh, brutality of a predatory state, I mean, it's a, a state is an institution of class oppression, as you and I know, Rani. and the police is, a, is an instrument of that class oppression. So that's uh, taken that as it is, but uh, I would say that we were uh, living in a society where, uh, you know, on because on ground because of religion, 
uh, we didn't have so much of violence. Religious violence used to take place, not that it did not, and not that there were no communal riots. But this has gone down hmm. after, and there is the legacy of 1947 partisan riots. So it has taken its time and its toll. But by this late 70s and early 80s, if you look at the figures, and uh, I think people came to terms and, and we, we were settling down. Uh, to a society where people of different religions, particularly the Muslim community, which is the largest minority, constituting nearly 16% of the, of the population. And that's not small, that's very large. Did you say 16 percentage? One six. One though, six. Clearly, uh, though, though, about about 200, 200, 300 millions or more? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So, but BJP, on the other hand, has been trying uh, to push the line of a religious cultural nationalism. It has always, it comes from that right-wing uh, thinking, and it goes back in the 1920s and 30s, uh, that uh, we are a Hindu people, and India is a country of the Hindus, and it must belong to Hindus. So India is a, is a Hindu nation, and others who are here, uh, they must, uh, you know, adhere to our, uh, you know, superiority and our, and, and uh, basically uh, become second class citizens. Now, this is a line which has been opposed, but over the years, I think, and, and particularly after, under neoliberalism, as economic crisis became more and more acute, and though, mind you, I mean, the, uh, the, the incompetent and uh, you know liberal government congress bad as it was it was in terms of alleviating people from poverty uh, it had done enormous amount of work between 2008 to 2011 i think india and china uh, were the two countries which which raised the largest number of people from poverty and yet uh, of course, the, the problem continued, and there's also the problem of the middle class. The Indian middle class is very small, I mean, as compared to China. And the Indian middle class uh, also feels very insecure, uh, because uh, its capacity to, to be able to look after itself or negotiate is very, very small. So they were feeling more threatened. So what we see, or what we saw is uh, from the end of uh, you know, uh, 2010, 2011, a shift towards this right wing uh, and led by urban middle class, particularly low middle class, and also the, uh, the business community. The business community also felt threatened, uh, I think primarily because towards the end, the Congress government had started adopting certain socialist measures like you know, social security measures, like employment guarantee scheme, uh, right to education, right to health, right to food. So all, all that, I think, created some kind of you know, paranoia and, and fear. Uh, so, the, so what we saw, and it's the fact, the business community, the large one, but they are much shifted from their support to the liberal uh, political parties to this right-wing Hindu party. So, so in 2014, uh, Unthinkable happened that uh, you know that, that we saw the emergence of this, uh, or perhaps uh, I would say that you know we were sort of complacent. We were uh, sort of you know thinking, oh you know it just cannot happen. The cause of secular uh, 
uh, ideas and secularism has gone so deep, uh, you can't really change uh, the, the social and cultural thinking of people, but it happened. And it happened with the man. I mean, we didn't know what he did. You mean Modi? Modi. Yeah, Modi. I mean... I just couldn't think of. I mean, we used to call him a murderer, you know? Yeah, yeah, from Gujarati. He was yeah, accused yeah. of, you know, he was banned from the United States for his role in the Gujarati yeah. massacres. And, and, uh, and then it just all changed. I mean, he became the Prime Minister. And uh, since then, he's been uh, on, a, on a roller coaster. Modi is an extremely egocentric, uh, you know, person. He, when he was the Chief Minister of Gujarat, his cabinet was... Uh, Nothing. I mean, he never met his ministers. He was only called the secretaries of the departments and give them orders directly. His ministers were just for show. Exactly the similar thing going on here. Is the prime minister, Mr. Modi, who takes the decision, whether it was demonetization or, or anything. Demonetization affected the entire country. He took that decision all by himself. Even the, even the finance minister did not know. The head of India's government uh, bank the Reserve Bank of India did not know. Nobody knew. He just took and so similarly when he announced the lockdown, uh, he announced the lockdown just on the spot without you know, even thinking that there are more than a hundred or hundred and ten million people who have migrated, who migrate from the poorer areas of India, the eastern India primarily, to Western India, which is more developed and industrialized, that they will be nowhere. And this is exactly what happened. Well, a thousand people have died, you know, just trying to get back. And, but this is what Modi is. I mean, he, he just decides. And, and, and Well, apparently, uh, sorry to interrupt here. Uh, what I picked up from what you were saying about, you know, India, uh, the, the economic, you know, the sense of economic and, and the social insecurities that resulted from various, you know, like... Um, economic policies that promoted, um, you know, market interest over public well-being. Yeah. That created a situation meant, uh, you know, psychologically for all kinds of, um, you know, uh, the, the fundamentalist uh, Hindu manipulations by BJP. And then you've got, um, a, 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 you know, a, a known thug like uh, Modi. Uh, and this seems to be the case in many, you know, pre-genocidal situations, whether we're talking about Nazi Germany in the, right yeah. now, in, during the interwar years, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or the, uh, the United States and its decline. And then what's striking is that, you know, uh, you know these uh, quote-unquote strongmen, you know, basically dictators, they generally were marginal figures until they strike. We mm. underestimated them and their ability to, you know, grab power, weaken institutions to the point where no one or no institution stands in their way. Whether we're talking about Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump or, you know, people like, you know, don't um, say like uh, Boris Johnson in this country. He's a joke, a buffoon, a charlatan. Yeah? Absolutely. And then the, the same in my country, Nguyen. No one, you know, my, my great uncle knew Nguyen very well. They used to drink together. Uh, now both of them are gone. Like, you know, Nguyen was, no one took Nguyen seriously. 
look, I mean, you know, uh, how far he had gone. You know, he set up this uh, uh, genocidal framework for the Rohingya. So, so two things happening. These, like, you know, closeted dictators waiting in their wings, having been underestimated or written off by the political class. And then when the situation is ripe, they turn into this hate-mongering, racist, bigoted demagogues. I mean, that's what you have in India. You know, that's what we are living in Burma today. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities in what is happening in Burma and, and, and also in here. Uh, see, he's, uh, Modi has two things. One, uh, he, he said he will bring prosperity to everybody. He knows he can't. Everybody knows he can't. So what does he do? His main, thing, main campaign is on nationalism. Our security is under threat. There are enemies within, which are the Muslims. And the liberals and the left, people like us. And there is an enemy outside, and Pakistan. Now, fortunately, China has given them another uh, opportunity. So now he is, you know, he's going. I mean, these dictators get so much help from others. Huh? Uh, we never got that kind of help internationally. Anyway, uh, so, I mean, this is, and, and you see, the discourse on nationalism is one of the, uh, you know, how, how insidious and how how problematic it is and how, how violent it is. And that has that is taking its toll. And and construction of this cultural, religious, Hindu nationalism, which they have been doing over the years, you know, uh, gradually and you know and uh, spreading out. So they've been able to get uh, a large section, I would say uh, maybe nearly about 30 to 40 percent of our population cutting across class to actually believe that our real problem is external threat our real problem is this internal support here the the, the muslims and you know the, the minorities and also this uh, you know these muslims who, who are uh, illegally migrating into our country, Assam. Hmm. Assamese have been paranoid about it for the last 50 years, nearly. Uh, and uh, down to the Rohingyas. Uh, I mean, officially, Modi government went to the Supreme Court of India and said, these Rohingyas are a potential threat to our national security. Now, what do you mean a potential threat? Either they're a threat or they're not. If they're not a threat today, that's what we are. Then, oh, the, I mean, this this is the, you know the the, the uh, universal phenomenon across um, countries that commit um, you know various types of atrocity crimes. Yeah. You know, the the paranoia of uh, uns I mean, by definition, paranoia is never substantiated, right? Yeah. And um, the majoritarian public feeling threatened by what, objectively speaking is not a threat. Rangers, like, you know, 30,000, meaning, you know, downtrodden, paperless, documentless, you know, hardly uh, leading a life that we would call life. Um, and, and how can they possibly be a threat to 1.4 billion Indians, you know, like in their own country? And, and, and uh, you know, your home minister, I mean, you're not yours. I mean, obviously, the home minister of India 
frame the Rohingyas as termites. You know, this is a genocidal uh, uh, the, the framing. And then uh, you, you've got 200 plus million Muslims who have been there for centuries or millennia even. They've been scapegoated. So well, where do you see India going with this sort of fundamentalist, uh, you know, quite uh, obviously a, a fascist ideology driving the public opinion of 30 to 40 percentage of a Hindu public across castes and classes? Well, I, uh, I don't see a very bright future in, 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 in you know, immediately or in near future. Uh, but I do believe that uh, fissures are, are visible. See, uh, economy having not done well at all, in fact, unemployment rate is one of the highest, even before COVID. Uh, economy was going down even before COVID. And you and I know this whole theory of trickle-down, uh, high growth and trickle-down has, has proved completely false everywhere. Uh, high growth has only given high growth to uh, to few and uh, extreme poverty to the uh, to the masses, and that is exactly what is happening. So the point is that slogans don't fill their bellies. So sooner or later, uh, Mr. Modi and his uh, cohorts are going to going to face problems, as it was already happening. You see uh, how resistance in under authoritarian regime comes about, some start gelling and. and expanding is uh, something that we, we don't really know, but we, we have seen it happen. And I think it was happening because what began as a small protest against the Citizenship Amendment Act, which privileged only, uh, which basically cut out Muslims from applying for citizenship to India, had become almost uh, a national phenomenon. There was protest in every part of the country and all the other issues, joblessness, educational rights, all that were uh, being added. So things were, you know, expanding. And, and I see, uh, though because of COVID, uh, it is all now gone uh, sort of underground, but it is underground, it is not gone. You can see in the social media, you can also see in small protests that is coming out. Wherever people are in a position, uh, they are coming out and making it so and and I see the government fall back on making the police more brutal, taking more actions, more draconian laws is, is is also a retreat you see if they were having such great support, they would need to do so and even within their own party, things are uh, no longer that uh, that good as that. So things, uh, uh, I, I think, uh, let's let's wait and see how it goes. Uh, this COVID alertness cannot, you know, hold us back all the time, and and it will open. And when it opens, I foresee a massive, uh, you know, uh, opposition and uh, massive show strength on the streets. How it will work out? To what extent, and it may turn into violence. For all I know, it will. Yeah, I mean, but, what? Sorry, yeah. when when you have a situation 
where like cows are made or cows are believed to be more sacred and worth protecting than human lives of Muslims. You know, yeah. you you yeah. see like there's something fundamentally, you know, anti-human and and uh, you know deeply troubling. You know, it's absolutely inhuman. It is it is a it is a product of a sick mind. You know, unless you are sick, you cannot do things like this. I mean, all those police people and others who go and beat up people in, in custody, they're, they're people, they're the sick people. Uh, and they should not be in police, they should be in hospital and being treated. Uh, I, I, I do think, I mean, uh, Mr. Modi and, and some of his people need uh, uh, to, uh, to maybe see psychiatrists and help. Because the way they, uh, they talk, the way they are, uh, in fact, a very well-known psychiatrist or, or psychologist of India, after the uh, Babri Mosque was destroyed, had interviewed Mr. Modi, and he's a very well-known writer. You must be must have read him or heard his name, Ashish Nandi. Yeah. Ashish Nandi said after his interview with Modi that he is a fascist. And then did Ashish, you say fascist? Oh, yes, and Ashish Nandi said. I'm not using it as, as, a, as a colloquial or as a, as a general term. I'm saying this as a trained psychologist. Right. Yes. I mean, the, you know, the, um, the, the same can be said or the same has been said about Donald Trump. You know, uh, yes. you know I mean, this, this is not a, 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 you know, simply a malicious disparaging labeling of, no, no. of, of you know those whose views um, we disagree with you know we can reasonable people can disagree on a lot of things yeah but we no. don't we don't go out of our way and label people fascist you know the, the former um, secretary of labor and uh, professor of public policy at berkeley uh, robert reich uh, the, who served mm -hmm. under uh, the bill clinton's um, the presidency he said, you know, he tweeted like recently, for three and a half years, I held out, these are his words, mm -hmm. from using this F word. But now I must use it, you know, also like, you know, the fact that he's, he's of a Jewish background makes it even more poignant. Yes. He yes. called Donald Trump fascist. And then Mr. Trump visited, um, you know, India. And and he was so buddy buddy with the Modi, right? Oh, Modi hugs him all the time. He meets him. <laughs> yeah, the 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 resistance you're talking about, you know, like uh, the, I know, like uh, people like Arundhati Roy and others have been extremely extremely um, critical and and uh, uh, for pushing back. Uh, you're trying to change the narrative for, uh, or you know, like uh, yeah. The, the before the COVID, you got, you know, maybe 200 million Indians taking to the streets, uh, protesting, yes. pushing back, you yes. know, like uh, many, obviously, uh, you know, millions of uh, the decent Hindu join with Muslims and others to say that this is not where we want our country to go, which is uh, uh, the fascism, right? And, yes. and, uh, um, um, how strong of uh, or solid um, the support that Modi has from his base? You said thirty percent, forty percent. How strong is it? 
Well, I mean, in electoral terms, he's got about, I think, 36% vote, uh, which is uh, a minority vote, obviously. Uh, but, I mean, that's, that's what happens in this kind of elections. Uh, I, I would say that, uh, see, we have two problems. One is uh, the, you know, centuries of living uh, with uh, this situation where a large section of humanity in my neighborhood are considered uh, uh, subhuman. Because of sub subhuman, subhuman by whom? Lower by whom? By the upper caste. Uh, we we you know brought up on this culture. Uh, the upper caste is brought up on this culture that the the Dalit uh, are the untouchables are subhuman. What percentage do they um, do they constitute? If you have the figure. Oh, the Dalit constitute around uh, I think uh, yeah between. I think around 10 to 11 percent. That is huge. We are looking at about 100 million humans considered. No, India, India is a country in that way. If you look at minorities, Dalits constitute about 10 to 11 percent. The Adivasis, the, the indigenous people, constitute around 8 percent. The Muslims constitute around 16 percent. So, you know, so, if so you, we're looking at 40 percent of uh, Indians. 40% and among that 40% only, I think about 10 to 11% are the real Brahminical upper caste. The, the rest are known as what is called the uh, middle caste or the other than, uh, other backward caste and so on and so forth. So if you look at the caste metric, it's very complicated. And, but it has, you know, it's, it was the most perfect system of apartheid, you know, conceived of long before it happened in South Africa or other places. Yeah, but it been, it been there for about like, you know, the four or 5,000 years, you know. That's why Gayatri, um, you know, Chakravarti Spivak said, you know, caste system is essentially a genocide because that people were deprived of generations after generations over centuries, uh, the opportunities to be fully human. Yeah, she calls that a genocide. Like we need to pay attention to this centuries-old genocide, legitimized uh, intellectually and spiritually within the Indian, uh, you know, ideological framework. Yeah, they have been deprived of food. They have been deprived of you know access to water, medication, good, any any kind of you know proper housing. So if for generations you have been, you know, living on half a meal, what your offsprings and their offspring should be more and more physically debilitated. And that is what has happened. So, but also at the same time, if you look at this Dalit, the slightest opportunity, one little push, and their children are, are going outstripping the so-called upper caste by millions of, uh, you know. I, I have some friends who, who came to, um, to study on Indian government scholarship at Oxford. Yeah, <laughs> doing well. And then you've got, I mean, this is the, 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 in the greatest irony. The Indian constitution, to the best of my knowledge, was largely drafted or, or influenced by Ambedkar, yeah? uh, a Dalit man. You know, yeah. uh, the, the contemporary with uh, Nehru and, um, and, and Gandhiji and whatnot. And so um, 
but this has been going on for 4,000, 5,000 years, you know. And, uh, um, and then like you, you, you've got a, a Brahmanist upper caste that fill the uh, faculty department or the faculties at JNU, 95%, some of my yeah. friends said. Yeah. You know, you've got a small minority that has a stranglehold over the Indian institutions, perpetuating this, you know, essentially semi-genocidal system. For centuries, I mean, Hitler only had 12 years to do his job. I mean, Indian Brahmanistic class has 4,000 years to yes. shape this in the most dehumanizing way. And, and it's a system which was in, in many ways supported and, uh, you know, upheld by the British because they found them very, very, you know, easy and, and they were the best collaborators with, with the British. Well, it's a reflection of the, the British society, which is also extremely stratified, yeah. down to how you pronounce your words. Precisely, precisely. Uh, I mean, I, when I was growing up, uh, we had teachers who teach us uh, to speak English properly. <laughs> properly, properly, yes. <laughs> That's like upper class yeah. English, yeah? Yes, yes. Uh, oh, we had things like King's English and Queen's English. Uh, right part of our text in our I mean I read more about British history, Normans and this that than the history of my own country. You know, well that's a that's a that's a universal colonial phenomenon. Yeah. All across Southeast Asia. The same thing. We know more about Shakespeare than you know someone in, in, in Indonesia. You know for instance uh, <laughs> yes. and you know, so this is a I mean it's a serious issue and, and this is something even the Marxists were not able to deal with. Uh, the Communist Party did not actually touch the issue of caste in, a, in any kind of real sense. We skirted around. Uh, we said, you know, in, uh, increase the uh, class awareness and the caste will go. Uh, but it will not go and it will not go. Uh, in fact, the class awareness will not go until, unless we start fighting with, uh, you know, the institution of caste. And, and unravel it. Uh, we have to destroy it. There is no other way. Yeah. Uh, well, so these are institutions that cannot be reformed. Apartheid was not, not reformed. It was destroyed, right? Whether like peacefully or like armed struggle. Um, uh, because um, we are approaching the uh, the end of our conversation, I want to throw you. Um, I want to ask you something, because you you know I we watched your film last night, and you must be in your late 20s or early 30s at uh, you know at most mm -hmm. and you've been keeping going for half a century you know i mean like you you've done so many things like you know but bhopal beyond genocide and others uh, i took an interest in the uh, bhopal incident and the union carbide you know through uh the, through my um, ex-wife and um, the colleague um, uh -huh. and um um what how do you sustain yourself? You know, you, you, I mean, you know, occasionally you have difficulty like, you know, uh, climbing stairs and things like that. Use a cane upon occasion, but you, you know, your mind is still sound and uh, you, your spirit is uh, strong still. You keep going, you know, you're, you're considered uh, the rightly a father figure. And uh, for many Rohingyas in India, they look up to you. Um, you know, you were involved in uh, um, helping 
you know, the uh, East Bengali refugees in 1971-72. You travel extensively, you still write, and uh, you still challenge UNHCR. What, 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 how do you keep going? Well, I keep going because I have to keep going, Rani. I mean, like you keep going, you know, I mean, we can't stop once you start it. Uh, the point is, uh, no, uh, not now. See, I have never uh, done anything which I didn't want to do. I told myself pretty early in my life, I'll not look for a job. I will not take anybody's employment. I'll have to try. And I didn't come from a rich family. I come from a fairly middle class family. My father was a civil servant. And we're a large family. In fact, I left home because of my politics. And uh, my father was very uncomfortable with my extreme left-wing politics. So when I was doing my master's, I, I left home. I was underground for a little while, but you know, that's a different story. You're from Kolkata? Pardon? You were originally uh, from Yeah, Kolkata. I was born and brought up in Calcutta. I came to Delhi when my father was uh, transferred here. And then I did my university in, in Delhi. And uh, so, uh, I mean, that's been my motto. And I have, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that I have been able to sustain that. And uh, I took up issues uh, because I felt they, they needed to be, to be taken up. And then, you know, you go from one thing to the other. Uh, in 1971, I was there on the border of Bangladesh, then, then it's Pakistan, and then, you know, uh, all this happened, I mean, one after the other. So in a, in a country like India, I mean, like in, in Burma, if you start getting involved, you know, one or the other or the other. So it keeps on going and it keeps on sustaining. So I would say I have been sustained by the, by the involvement uh, that, that I have had. And if I did not have this involvement, probably I would not have sustained. I might have taken away long ago. There are some physical problems. I developed a bad uh, uh, lung problem called interstitial lung disease, which has caused other uh, complications. So yes, I have to sometimes be on oxygen, I have to be, uh, be on a... But nonetheless, Rani, it's been a good life and I've had a uh, good fight and I, will, uh, I think uh, I'm ready for another one if it comes. Yeah, well, I can totally, re- I can totally relate to that, you know, um, I, I have... Uh, I have never really seriously pursued career per se of anything. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like, uh, the, when you came from a very deeply troubled and, um, you know, uh, uh, a difficult uh, country, uh, you just cannot walk away. And, 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 and you know, uh, I admire your stamina and uh, wisdom and courage uh, uh, and all the contributions. I, I, uh, one thing I must uh, Rani, to a large extent, I think I my thinking was shaped by my mother. She was a refugee. She came from, from where? East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh. She was not a Rara refugee, but she would tell me uh, as a child stories about her home, stories about the, you know, even the pond, the tree, and so on. Later on, I realized how deeply, uh, you know, uh, traumatized in a way she was that she would remember all that. She missed all that all her life. And that's something that had uh, made me aware of the tragedy and the pain of people who are uprooted. And I think that is something I've carried with me all my time. 
Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts and giving me uh, a lot of time. And uh, um, it's, it's a great honor that, uh, that we, I get to speak to you and record thank this uh, podcast. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm going to stop and then uh, we'll let you know when um, that we will um, uh, put it on the Spotify. Uh, most likely next week. Yeah? Right. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye now.